The text for this morning's sermon comes from the book of Zephaniah, and I ask you to turn there and follow as I read. Zephaniah chapter 3, verses 14 through 20. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cast out your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall fear evil no more. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Do not fear, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord, your God, is in your midst, a warrior who gives victory. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will renew you in his love. He will exult over you with loud singing as on a day of festival. I will remove disaster from you so that you will not bear reproach for it. Behold, at that time I will deal with all your oppressors, and I will save the lame and gather the outcast. And I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time, I will bring you home. At the time when I gather you together, yea, I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. According to Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 1, The word of the Lord came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushai, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. Josiah, remember him? He reigned beginning about 80 years after the destruction of the northern kingdom by the the nation of Assyria. And during those 80 years before Josiah took the throne in the southern kingdom, Judah, the southern kingdom did not learn its lesson. They sank deeper and deeper into sin and rebellion against the law of God. And in the 18th year of Josiah's reign, Hilkiah the priest stumbled upon the book of the law, which had been for decades neglected in the temple. And he brought it out, dusted it off, took it to the king, and read it to him. And Josiah was a broken man and a broken king. He wept and he tore his kingly robes and he went on to his face before God in penitence because of realizing how disobedient the people and he had been. And in the next 13 years, he led Jerusalem and Judah in the most amazing reformation that Israel had ever known. He renewed the covenant between God and the people. He took the vessels of Baal and the Asherah out of the temple and burned them in the fields of Kidron. He deposed the idolatrous priests. He broke down the houses of the male cult prostitutes. 
He removed the horses that had been dedicated to the sun by the kings of Judah. And he reinstituted the Passover that had been overlooked and neglected ever since the days of the judges. And those were the days of Zephaniah. And I love to think about this team, Josiah and Zephaniah, the prophet and the king, both with a deep burden that the people were in disarray. They were in misery. The nations around taunting them. And they were unbelieving and rebellious. And God raises up a prophet in these days called Zephaniah, and he raises up a godly king called Josiah. And together with the word of God and with the social input of the king, they changed the society of that day. I see the book, therefore, when I read it, these little three chapters as a or an illustration of the kind of preaching that God inspires preachers to preach in days when the church is in a miserable state of sin and unbelief. And when there needs to be a revival and a reformation. If you want to know how God inspires prophets to preach in days like that, then read this book. So what I'd like to do is walk through the book with you and notice the outline of his preaching until we arrive at that magnificent high point of chapter 3, verse 17. So let's start with chapter 1. It's a warning to Jerusalem. It's a prediction of the coming day of wrath, the day of the Lord, distress and terror. Let's read verses 2 to 4 to get the flavor of the chapter. I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, says the Lord. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away birds of the air and the fish of the sea. I will overthrow the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, says the Lord. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal in the name of the idolatrous priests. Wow. Why is he so angry? Why is the indignation of God burning against the apple of his eye? Verse 8. The officials and the king's sons were arrayed in foreign attire, wanting to be like the other nations who had no God like Jehovah. Verse 9, the servants of the wealthy were filling their master's houses by violence and fraud. Verse 12, men were thickening upon their leaves. What does that mean? I had to look that up in the dictionary. They were thickening upon their leaves. The leaves is, is the sediment that just sort of sinks down and makes a scum at the bottom of fermenting wine so that you're supposed to keep turning it over, evidently. Otherwise, the lees. And so these people are described like this sediment at the bottom. And you know what characterizes that sediment? Sayings like this. The Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill, verse 12 says. Now, what does that mean? That means the people aren't afraid of God and they aren't excited about God. He is not to be reckoned with anymore. He's not 
important. He is neutral. He's just there. You might go through some motions with Him, but your heart doesn't leap up and your heart doesn't cower in fear. It's just nothing. That was Judah and Israel with regard to the true God. Chapter 2. In typical prophetic fashion, when you're preaching for revival after you've warned the people of their sin and and broadcast the wrath of God, now you call for repentance. Let's read verses 1 to 3, chapter 2. Come together, hold an assembly, O shameless nation, before you are driven away like the drifting chaff, before there comes upon you the fierce anger of the Lord, before there comes upon you the day of wrath of the Lord. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the, lo- of the land, who do His commands. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. Perhaps, perhaps you may be hidden on the day of wrath of the Lord. In other words, even if the cries of the humble may not avert the wrath of God from spreading over the whole earth and coming upon the people as a whole, it may result in at least them being hidden from the wrath of God in the day of His anger. And then Zephaniah cries out the woes and the warnings over the nations. This is verses 4 to 15 in chapter 2. Not only is God angry at His own nation, Judah and Jerusalem, He is angry at all the surrounding nations. He looks west, east, south, and north. Notice this. In verses 4 to 7, He directs His woes against Philistia. It's not mentioned, but the cities of Gaza, Ashkelon, Ashdod, and Ekron, they're all the main cities of the Philistines and the tribe of the Cherethites. That's Philistia, the old people who are enemies of the people of God. Then he looks the other direction, east, across the the Jordan Valley and the Dead Sea. And who does he see in verses 8 to 11? Moab and Ammon, and he pronounces judgment upon them. And then he looks south in verse 12 to Ethiopia, and he pronounces judgment upon the Ethiopians. And then he looks north to the great and terrible nation of Assyria in verses 13 to 15. What's the point? The point is that all the surrounding nations of Israel must reckon with the God of judgment and righteousness. Why? Why is God so angry at the nations? Verse 10 probably sums up the reason best of all the verses. This shall be their lot in return for their pride because they scoffed and boasted against the people of the Lord of hosts. So what's the root cause of worldwide judgment? Pride. Human pride brings down the wrath of God on this world more than anything else. And then that pride gave rise to taunting and boasting over the people of God, the church of the Lord in those days. And so God says the nations will pay. But, lest Jerusalem begin to gloat over the nations and say something like, right on, sock it to the nations, Zephaniah. He comes back to Jerusalem in verses 1 to 8 of chapter 3 and he 
indicts them again. Let's read verses 1 and 2. Woe to her that is rebellious and defiled, the oppressing city. She listens to no voice. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. And then, after verses 1 to 8, comes an utterly amazing shift of focus in verses 9 to 20. Alongside this threat of destruction that is coming upon the world and upon Judah, God promises love, mercy, and deliverance. So what I want to do is focus in these verses on two great acts of mercy that are described in verses 9 to 20. Number one, the first great act of mercy described in these verses, 9 to 20 of chapter 3, is a global awakening so that the people of all the nations come to the Lord. Verse 9, Yea, at that time I will change the speech, or the lips, literally, of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call on the name of the Lord and serve Him with one accord, or literally you would say, shoulder to shoulder. In other words, God is not content merely to judge the nations. He says that there is going to be a a great revival among the nations, a transformation among the nations so that they call upon the Lord and that they serve Him with one accord. Now, how does, how does this work? This is very strange. If you strip out all the verse divisions and all the little paragraph breaks, none of which exist in the Hebrew Bible, and read this straight through, it is really puzzling and stunning. Let me show you. I'll try to read it and capture some of the mood that shifts so abruptly by starting in the middle of verse 8 and reading through verse 9. For my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out my indignation, all the heat of my anger, in the fire of my jealous wrath, all the earth shall be consumed. For then I will give the people's purified lips that all of them may call on the name of the Lord to serve him shoulder to shoulder. Now, what do you make of that? That is so abrupt. It is so strange. I will consume the earth and I will convert the peoples. It even says in verse 9, then... At that time, that is the time of my consuming wrath. That's when I'm going to do it. Zephaniah doesn't explain how the two can fit together toward the end of the age. In fact, none of the prophets in the Old Testament explain how that can fit together. Let me suggest a possible conception. Could it be that Zephaniah conceives of the wrath of God that is foretold here, that is coming upon the whole earth, 
as an extended period of judgments, an extended period of catastrophes that come upon nations and peoples for their unbelief and their wickedness, building up to a great climax and conflagration at the end. During which time, if you extend out the judgment like this, perhaps a contemporaneous, simultaneous with that judgment, God is at work in the world doing a great work of reviving and awakening and converting among the nations, gathering a people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation so that the two are, as it were, parallel in the experience of the world. You can read that partly in the book of Revelation. The judgments that God pours out upon this world may have already indeed begun and will stretch out and come to a great climax in the future. And so what I anticipate happening in the history of the world is greater and greater judgments and catastrophes and the outpouring of God's wrath and simultaneously a magnificent reawakening of God's church in the world and the turning to Him in all the unreached peoples of the world, and a mobilization at Bethlehem and a million other congregations of the people of God to finish the job of missions, gathering the people in from all the unreached of the world. So that verse 9 will have its literal fulfillment. No matter how God intends to do it, we must affirm these two things. The prophets always do. Wrath is coming upon the rebellious, the haughty, the proud, the unbelieving. Deliverance and mercy and joy and blessing and glory is coming upon all the humble, the lowly, the believing who hide in the name of God. And they will be from all the people. It will not be a small group. God will rule the nations. That's the first act of mercy described in verses 9 to 20, a global ingathering and awakening. Second act of mercy that is described in these verses is the reviving and the purification of the people of Israel themselves, God's own chosen race. Verses 11 to 12 describe this best. On that day, you, speaking to the Jews now, shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. For I will leave in the midst of you a people humble and lowly, they shall take refuge in the name of the Lord. So not only is God going to do a great global gathering, uh, to use the words of Paul, the fullness of the Gentiles will come in, but all Israel will be saved. He is going to do a converting work, a great purification of the people of Israel someday. He will eliminate the proud from their midst. He will leave behind only a humble and lowly and believing remnant who take refuge in his name. So the judgments of God are not the last word in this book. They're not the last word in any book in the Bible. The judgment of God is not the last word in the Bible as a whole. Mercy, deliverance, salvation, 
worldwide, of global scope, endless and infinite almost, in number, innumerable revelation pictures the redeemed. That's the last word of God in this text. Now, the question I want to raise for you before we look at the high point of the book in verse 17 of chapter 3 is this. What does all this talk in chapter 3, verses 10 following, have to do with you, Gentiles, and me? We're just Johnny-come-latelys in this affair of salvation, you know. Salvation is of the Jews. This whole book is a Jewish book. There's not a Gentile writer in this book. Jesus was a Jew. All the apostles were Jews. It ought to be a serious question for you what right you have to have a share in the Jewish Messiah. You know, it doesn't bother you because for 2,000 years, Gentiles have been assuming that the promises of the Bible are ours. And we come dangerously close sometimes to disobeying the warnings of Romans 11. Take heed lest you boast over the broken off branches that meet over at Temple Israel on Saturday. For God can break you off too, Paul says, through unbelief. And He can graft them in again. And He will graft them in again. Salvation is of the Jews. Our King is a Jew. What right do we Gentiles have to walk in here and lay claim to Zephaniah 3.17? Now, if that doesn't bother you, it at least bothered the Apostle Paul. Because he was a Pharisee of the Pharisees, and lo and behold, God comes to him on the Damascus Road and says, I'm going to make you an Apostle to the nations unclean and uncircumcised, eating ham and keeping no feasts. They couldn't think of it. And God says, you're going to be an apostle to the Gentiles. And Paul said, i got to have an answer here. How in the world can Gentiles be made partakers of the promises made to Abraham? Ephesians chapter 3. I'd like you to put your finger at Zephaniah and turn to Ephesians chapter 3 because I really want all of us at Bethlehem, I don't just mean preachers, to be able to explain to your Jewish friends why you worship from their Bible. Why you lay claim to the promises made to them in the Old Testament. Who do we think we are? Every Gentile believer ought to be able to give an account for why we worship from the Hebrew Bible, and why we get all excited and worship like we've been worshiping this morning with promises made to them. Now, Paul wrestled with this very deeply, and he, he called it a mystery because he said it wasn't revealed fully in the Old Testament. He said that it was a mystery because it had now been revealed to the apostles and prophets And it's in chapter 3 of Ephesians, verses um, 4 to 6. Let's read it together. When you read this, he says, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. 
Now, what is this mystery? Which was not made known in the, to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed uh, to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Namely, that is, here it is, here's the mystery. How the Gentiles, that's us, are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Now, let's try to sum it up. How is it that you can call yourself a fellow heir with the Jews of Abraham and all the promises made to the Jews in the Old Testament so that you can pick up the Old Testament, read it as your book, and exult in magnificent promises like we're about to read here in chapter 3, verse 17. Here's the way to explain it. The gospel was preached to the Gentiles because God is the God of all the earth. Jews know that. You can show that from the Old Testament right here in chapter 3, verse 9. The gospel came to us and we believe the gospel of Christ crucified and risen for sinners. And in believing, we were united to the Messiah. Christ, Jesus is his name. And in being united to the Christ, we were united to the seed of Abraham, in whom all the promises of God are yes and amen. And so you explain that I was united to your Messiah by faith. I have been circumcised in my heart by faith. And now I am an heir because Christ is the heir of all the promises made to the seed of Abraham. Man, if you gave a testimony like that to your Jewish friends, they might start taking your religion seriously instead of being the, the antipathy to Judaism, just laden with anti-Semitism in 2,000 years of it. You might, you might cause them to think that you love them and that you honor their heritage and that you consider yourself a Johnny-come-lately in their faith. Now back to Zephaniah. We've got the answer, I think, of why we can rejoice in the promises of this chapter 3. And I want to go to the main verse and just ponder it with you for a few minutes. Verse 17. The Lord your God is in your midst, a warrior who gives victory. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will renew you in his love, the RSV says. If you have a, a, an NIV, it says he will quiet you, I think, with his love. If you have an NASB, I think you're probably the closest. He will be quiet in his love. I think the meaning is he will stop accusing because he loves you. And then the last phrase, he will exult over you with loud singing. Now, this is where I got the title to the message, God has pleasure in the good of his people. He's not doing you good because he's under constraint. Jesus didn't get God's arm behind his back and, and at the cross kind of force him to show mercy to the world. Woe to people who have that conception of the Trinity. There is no division in the Trinity. God is free and he spills over in love onto you with loud singing. Now, that's the most amazing thing I think you can read. 
that God shouts with singing over you this morning. What do you hear when you hear God singing? You remember, don't you, that at the beginning of the universe, when he created the galaxies, he did it by speaking. Perhaps with a moderate tone of voice, he said, let there be light. Let there be a universe. And it happened. What will happen when he sings? Maybe a new heavens and a new earth. In fact, Isaiah almost says this very thing. Isaiah says, Behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth. I create Jerusalem a rejoicing and her people a joy. When God sings, something magnificent happens. A new people, a new heavens, a new earth. What do you hear when you hear God singing? Let your imagine work for a moment now, because if you don't exercise your imagination when you read texts like this, you'll just say ho-hum and go out to breakfast. This text ought to stop you cold. Here's my effort yesterday to hear this text. What I hear when I hear the singing of God is the crash of Niagara Falls and the boom of that water hitting the bottom and the spray coming up, mingled together with the sound of a quiet little mountain mossy stream. I hear the blast of Mount St. Helens 40 miles away, mingled with the purr of a kitten. I hear the power of an East Coast hurricane mingled together with the almost inaudible puff of snow in a night wood. And I hear the roar of the burning of the sun, 865,000 miles thick, 1,300,000 times bigger than the earth, and it is all fire. One million degrees centigrade on the cooler surface of the corona. And as Leah was playing the organ in the second service, this image came to my mind. I wonder if God would ever grant me to go into a little capsule, a little transparent bubble, air-conditioned on the inside at about 68 degrees, made of a material in heaven that cannot burn under any circumstances and shoot me at about a million miles a minute toward the sun so that in the next 93 minutes I would watch this sun grow like this until there was nothing but the sun as it filled the horizon and then as I look back at the black universe, I would watch the sun close around me. And for 865,000 miles, I would fly through the song of God. I mean, somehow we have to get a handle on what it means that God Almighty who made the world 
sings over us. Can you feel the wonder of this this morning? Perhaps you say, no, I can't because I'm guilty here this morning. Well, then look at verse 15 and believe. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. So can you not then be free from guilt and sing this morning that God exalts with loud singing over you? And perhaps you said, no, I can't because I'm surrounded by enemies and there are so many obstacles in the way of my joy that I can't begin to sing or feel that God is singing over me. Well, then look at verse 17. Can't you believe verse 17? The Lord is a warrior who gives victory over those obstacles. Verse 19. Behold, at that time I will deal with your oppressors. He's on your side fighting for you. Verse 15. He cast out. Your enemies, can't you then feel the wonder that God is singing over you this morning with loud shouts of victory? And perhaps you say, no, not yet, because he's so big and he's so awesome and he's so far, far away. I can't even imagine him being near enough to know. Well, then look at verse 15, the King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. Verse 17, the Lord, your God, is in your midst. He is not far away this morning. He's right here in this room. Can you not feel the wonder that He is singing with the power of the fire of the sun, rejoicing over you this morning with love and mercy and grace? And perhaps you say, No, because I am enslaved to shame. I have been belittled endlessly by my parents. I have been scoffed and threatened and manipulated and slandered. And inside the cocoon of my shame, even the singing of God is indecipherable. Everything is a haze. I don't feel what you're talking about. Well, look at verse 19 again. Will you believe this? Will you pray that God would give you the ability to believe this promise? I will save the lame and gather the outcast. I will change their shame. I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. Sure, we have shame. And theirs is real. Yours may not even be real. And he says, I'm going to change it into worldwide renown. You're going to judge angels someday. Can you feel the wonder of what it means this morning to have God Almighty who made the heaven and the earth rejoicing over you with loud shouts of victory? And perhaps you say, almost, Pastor John, almost I can let myself go to feel that. Almost I can grasp and believe what you're saying. But you said, in fact, you've stressed it so heavily that God loves His glory and God delights in His name above all things. Where do I fit into that? Where does the joy of God in His name relate to me? And I say to you, if that is your final objection, make you ready to rejoice. Because the answer is right here more clearly than any place in all the Bible how those two things fit together. And let me just ask you this question before I show you the text. 
If you knew that God Almighty rejoiced in His name and gloried in His own reputation above all things, and if you knew that you wanted that joy, that you wanted to be swallowed up in that joy so that He was rejoicing over you with shouts of victory, where would you go? In what would you take refuge? Verse 12, the Lord says, For I will leave in the midst of you a people humble and lowly. They shall take refuge, where? In the name of the Lord. It's not hard to understand why God will will rejoice over you because He rejoices in His name. For that's where you have fled for refuge, isn't it? If you seek your own glory this morning, verily you have your reward among men. If you seek to exalt your name, verily you have your reward among men. If you seek to clothe yourself with your good works and your righteousness, you've got your reward. People will call you moral and they will admire you. And that's it. But if you seek the glory of God, If you take your little name, John Piper, and let it get consumed in the massive name of God, and if you clothe yourself not with your righteousness, but with the righteousness of His Son, what do you think God's going to do when He looks on you? He's going to dance. He's going to leap. His hands will fly like the Father's when the Son came home. He will sing over you and rejoice with shouts of great joy because you have taken refuge in His name. And He loves His name above all things. And His love falls upon people who hide in His name with the incredible gift of a dance and a song and a sun-like massive power of joy. Put away pride this morning. Forget making a name for yourself. Take refuge in the name of God. Clothe yourselves with the righteousness of Christ by faith this morning and listen to the song of God. Shall we stand and give thanks to the Lord? O God in heaven, we are far from being the exalting people we should be. Give us ears to hear. Please, God, give us ears to hear the song today. For we would be bold. We would have a holy audacity. We would bear witness. We would be righteous. We would be lowly. We would be joyful. Oh, God, grant us to hear the song of rejoicing in your own heart over us as we hide in Jesus Christ. And now, to the God who is immortal, invisible, the only wise God who rejoices over his people with singing, be glory and majesty and honor before all all time, now and forevermore. And all the people said, Amen.